Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, we are going to discuss the complication of a cyclist, new solution for an old problem. And to this end, I'm very happy that we have three distinguished experts joining the discussion that are Dr. Virginia Hernandez-Gea from the Hospital Clinic in Barcelona, an internationally renowned expert in tips and portal hypertension, Dr. Christina Rippel from the University Clinic in Jena, also a renowned expert in portal hypertension and also a panelist of the Baveno 7 consensus on preventing the first episode uh, of decompensation, which is mostly ascites. And finally, Dr. Benjamin Masumi from the Hanover Medical School in Germany, who has a large cohort of patients with ascites and published on uh, his experience in that cohort. And uh, with all of us, um, we're very happy to discuss interventions, uh, diagnostic workup, and solution uh, for this very severe complication in cirrhosis. So we're happy to have you here on board. And I would like uh, to start um, today's discussion by showing you uh, the course that these patients with ascites can take. And to this end, um, we have this team here, which is a Sanke blot that should uh, indicate for you that regardless if the patients present to your clinic um, with a grade two or grade three ascites, it indicates a worse prognosis of these patients. As indicated uh, by the Baveno 7 consensus, these two grades of ascites are defining decompensation. And while the course is very heterogeneous, uh, we would not go now into the details of hepaturenal syndrome, of hepatic encephalopathy, SPP, but I want to highlight on the very right hand, that many of these patients will actually require liver transplantation or eventually die if we don't adequately treat them. However, if we treat them, especially with etiological therapy, we might even be able to achieve recompensation in these patients, and these patients have then a favorable prognosis. Okay, so with setting the stage with this heterogeneous course, I now would like to start the discussion round with asking um, my experts invited here, if you are going to face a patient with ascites coming first to your clinic, what would you do first? Uh, and, that, and with that, I would imply, what is your basic diagnostic scheme? What would be your recommendation, your diuretic treatment? What is your follow-up and your evaluation with uh, your, in your daily clinical practice? And if I may, I would like to address this question first to Christina Ripple. Um, what you do with your patient with ascites. Uh, hi, Thomas, and thanks um, for the introduction. And to go to the point to answer your question, um, when we first get a patient with ascites, when I first see a patient with ascites, I first uh, obviously do a diagnostic paracentesis, which should always be done when we have uh, ascites. In these patients, I always normally do uh, a heart ultrasound. I also do a 24-hour urine uh, output, also to see if the patient could have uh, proteinuria so that he has too much protein in the urine, which which could justify the 
um, and ascites because sometimes, you know, cirrhotic patients, although they do have cirrhosis, they can also have other things that could lead to ascites. So I know we normally do a, um, a thorough workup on these patients. And regarding the, depending on, obviously, we do a large volume paracentesis, like everybody, I guess, uh, when the ascites is symptomatic and the patient has problems with ascites. And um, besides these, uh, beyond these first measures, then we go on and we start with diuretics. And I also normally talk to my patients a bit longer when they first come with ascites. And I try to explain to them that ascites comes from salt retention, because this, although is clear for us, because we work all day in this, and you know, this is sort of common and easily, we understand that a diuretic increases salt uh, output, and therefore um, it has, it's a problem with salt. But for patients, this is not so clear. So I talk about not necessarily, if, just at the beginning, and because I don't want my patients to go uh, undernourished, so I don't necessarily, you know, propose a strict salt restriction, two grams or four grams a day or whatever. But I do explain to them that ascites comes with salt, more salt, more ascites. I explain also to them that salt is all over the place, not only adding salt, but we know some people do have rather unhealthy diet, eating a lot of um, uh, pre-processed foods. This is all very salty food. And I always go through this. Besides uh, this, I normally start to go further on and to not take up too much time. Uh, I start with diuretics with, normally I do a combination of spironolactone and here in Germany, uh, Torosamid. Uh, normally I keep a ratio for 100 to 10, uh, depending on the clinical situation, though this may be obviously obviously different. And I go stepping up, this is, depends if the patient's on the ward or the patient is on an outpatient basis, uh, I would step up on the ward after uh, three days or so, um, and on an outpatient basis, less, less. I mean, with more time because they don't are not able to come so frequently to the outpatient clinic. I control, but during this, I always control, obviously, the creatinine. I always control natrium. Obviously, we do not want to have complications with these patients. And then uh, the following follow-ups, and with this, I will finish because if not, I'm taking up too much time. Uh, the following follow-ups, once the patient has a proper dose of diuretics and has no main problems, I would most likely tell the patient to come back in three months if he's having a good uh, response to the to the diuretic therapy. Okay, thank you very much. So cardiac workup, renal workup, paracentesis, diuretic, salt restrictions. What else? <laughs> uh, Virginia, what, what are you doing in Spain? Well, I think that we are uh, doing exactly the same. And I think that Christina brought an important point is that speaking with the patient. And I think that development of ascites is, is a milestone in the natural history of the disease. So it means that your prognosis is changing. Uh, and, and I think that this is the moment, if not before, to start like speaking seriously with the patient. Is the patient drinking or has is something acute this episode or, or is something that it's becoming chronic, it's a worsening of ascites and, and in this 
this is uh, probably a different setting. So I think that the most important thing besides everything else that, that Christine explained um, greatly is um, starting speaking with the patient about prognosis and about other treatments, starting thinking about liver transplant. Is this patient a liver transplant candidate or not? Because this is a very uh, important prognostic um, step in the, in the natural history uh, of the disease. And then I guess that management, well, I would do a, only a, a small different thing is that I will put the patient on spironolactone alone at the beginning and try to titrate uh, spironolactone. And if it's not a responder, then I will come later on with um, furosemide in, 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 in a second step. This is the only uh, small uh, difference, salt restriction mm-hmm. and, and, and everything. So, that, that... so when you speak about titration and starting with spironolactone, that would um, that would probably mean that you would see the patient earlier than three months, right? So when do you get them back? Yeah, I think that that um, now, or at least for us, something that that COVID made like very easy is to have phone calls with the patients, right? So you can call the patient. You can. I try always to explain uh, how about like like measuring the weight and 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 be careful of not like losing too much. And then you can call the patient one week later, and and depends of course on the on the patient. And it's something that you can like easily do like a phone call every week until you are sure that things are going well and probably in one month you should be um, done with the triteration uh, of the of the diuretic so I, I will um, tend to call the patient and to make sure that everything is um, going okay and then like um, stepping stepping up uh, the doses very good yeah so finally uh, we land in Germany um, Dr. Masumi, what is your what is your addition to this workup uh, and your treatment of choice? So surprisingly, we are not doing everything differently than the previous uh, the previous speakers told us. So um, the only thing that I might add, but I think it was just forgotten, is that we um, particularly have a look on the with the ultrasound on the uh, portal vein tract, whether there's, for example, portal vein thrombosis. Um, I personally like to send some of the some material to the pathologist to exclude malignant ascites. Um, if you do that, I think it's important to um, to stress that you need a lot of volume, at least 20 mLs, um, to really have a sensitivity that is high enough. If you look for malignant ascites, in terms of the diuretics, I go with uh, Christina actually. So I, my impression is that in terms of the potassium levels. I made Baker a better experience to, to go for the combination of spironolactone and trozomide right at the beginning. Um, but um, that's just, I think, uh, just a personal personal thing. So um, my impression is that the combination um, right at the beginning, it's easier to handle potassium levels, however. And in terms of the follow-up, which is my last point, I think we strongly depend on the GP, actually. So in terms of then the fine-tuning of the diuretics, we try to work closely together with the GP and then see the patients after maybe three, or even if it's a good, if it's a quite uncomplicated after six months in some, in some cases, usually after three months. Mm-hmm. So thanks for your first um, very important um, recommendations for the basic evaluation. And I think um, it is very, um, very good to hear that um, we mostly agree uh, on the very basic um, treatment, which is paracentesis, diagnostics, um, and the workup 
uh, for for conditions. Um, interesting to hear that portal vein thrombosis uh, was also an important point here to make. All right. Um, so with this, uh, let's say more uh, medical treatment and first diagnostic workup of these patients, uh, I think we get now in the middle um, of the uh, of the hot topics, which are the new solutions. And some of them might not be so new, uh, but some others are newer or at least um, maybe more recently introduced or modified in a certain way. And uh, here I would like um, to have the studio team uh, show a second slide that should uh, aim to summarize a little bit what kind of more interventional treatment options that we have. And uh, next to the paracentesis that we were already that we already spoke about and liver transplantation, because it marks this watershed moment of decompensation, we would like to specifically address, on the one hand, the transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, which is a very effective treatment of portal hypertension, as we have learned, and also in the management of ascites, and also the drainage system, which could be a tunneled permanent catheter system with an external drainage, or the low-flow pump system, uh, which would drain they assign this to the bladder. So these are all options uh, that we have available for the patients. And I would now like to start with uh, the question to, I would like to direct this question to Virginia because she uh, works a lot with tips, not only for bleeding, but also with, uh, um, uh, with ascites. So I would like to know from you, when you see a patient with ascites, when is the moment when you think about tips and when is the moment where you don't think about tips? Well, I think that this is the $1 million uh, question, right? It's like, when is the right moment for tips? What we have been learning in the last years is that as it, it, as it happened with um, the bleeding, the earlier, the better would be my, my only message. So if you, if this ascites is becoming refractory ascites and the patient you are seeing that it's coming, starting like coming three, two, three times uh, for uh, paracentesis. Probably this is the moment to start thinking: What is this patient that I'm that I'm that I'm facing? Is a good candidate or not? Um, Christine, Christina spoke about um, cardiac evaluation. This is something essential that we start doing if not done uh, before. Is the patient a liver transplant candidate or not? This is also something that that has to be evaluated at this point. Sometimes we think about. Um, um, tips only in non-liver uh, transplant candidates, but it, it's also a very potent treatment that can decrease portal hypertension, can change the natural history of the disease, and some of the patients may, um, may be um, no longer liver transplant um, candidates because you can recompensate the patients, right? So, I think that once that, that it's clear that this ascites is not going to be controlled with diuretics and the, the patient is starting in the program of repeated paracentesis, this is the right moment to start uh, discussing with the patient and to start like doing all the workup uh, that, you, you, that you need to decide whether the patient is a good um, candidate or not. And you don't want definitely, you don't want to wait uh, too long because we we all know how, how the patient is going to end up. It's a fragile 
child patient with sarcopenia, the, the nutrition probably, and those things will complicate the outcome uh, after tips. So we have to put the, the tips in the better uh, conditions, in the best conditions as, as, as possible. So my recommendation would be to start like very early thinking about um, this uh, possible treatment. Christina, you already have your hand up. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, well, I and I agree with Virginia and everything she said. Um, that it is seems that uh, an earlier tips and not waiting until the patient fulfills the 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 full the full picture of a refractory ascites may be better for the patient. However, I have to say that I also take into consideration whether or not the patient has acute events, which is leading to paracentesis. For example, if a patient has infection is getting, we have this sometimes, that patients have infections are getting one paracentesis after another in the context of the infection. I'm not sure that these paracentesis can be counted uh, of a worsening of the liver disease. The patient has an infection and this is leading to the, to the, to the paracentesis, to the worsening of the ascites. The same if the patient has an alcoholic hepatitis. And I also take into account what is what I think or how I think the patient is going to react. Is this a patient who drinks? This is my main population. Is this a patient who drinks who's going to maybe stop drinking or he's already stopped drinking a couple of months? In this situation, I would wait a little bit more because these patients can improve just because we control the cause of the liver disease. Very nice. And uh, in, in that regard, because you mentioned previously that you would see the patient three months afterwards, is that like the sweet spot where you are then more comfortable deciding uh, to put the tips in or so, is that? No. So I see. So um, so I would see the patient after I titrate him, I would see him after three months. Um, for the titration period, I would see him more frequently. When um, for the decision of the tips, I would, for example, if the patient comes on the ward, has an acute event, and there has a worsening of the ascites, um, I would try to see if we can recompensate the patient and and uh, have the patient under control with diuretics. And yeah, after six weeks or three months in this situation, I would have the patient come again. It's obvious that if the patient is at discharge and is coming again one month or or three weeks again afterwards for another ascites puncture and another ascites puncture, another ascites puncture, despite the fact that the acute event is controlled, then I wouldn't necessarily wait three months. Mm -hmm. So with uh, Germany having a very long tradition with TIPS, um, I think the logical question is now to ask um, Dr. Masume about his approach. I think that it is very important to stress that in terms of TIPS, we, we've been learning a lot, but we will learn a lot in the next years. I think, uh, like Virginia said, we have to stress that the TIPS procedure, and that is what we learned, I think, over the last years, it will be earlier in the natural history of cirrhosis. I mean, all the studies that have been, or many of the studies that have been published in the last years could show that earlier in the management of ascites also, we see a survivor benefit. Later on, we may see some symptom control, but the survivor benefit might be less pronounced. So I think we have to learn when really, I think it will be earlier, but we have to learn when is the perfect, perfect time point. And I think some studies are on the way. Um, there are some efforts to, to have studies and also randomized trials regarding earlier stages of, of cirrhosis, first paracentesis, and so on. But this is really, I think, difficult. But even more difficult, I think, is on the other hand, when is a patient, at which time point is a patient too sick? 
And this is something where we really struggle a lot. We have an intensive assessment at Hanover. We have not only an ultrasound of the heart, but we have also intense discussion with the surgeons and with the um, radiologists where we have a really an analyze, we really analyze the CT scan in terms of other collateral um, portostemic shunts that maybe could be could be even um, that we can maybe close or just to, for example, that are maybe shunts that are not beneficial for the patient because they are uh, leading towards the, towards the stomach or the esophagus, for example. And I think in terms of the contraindications, also in terms of cardiac contraindication, we still have to learn. I mean, there's no, not really a clear parameter that tells us that the hemodynamic situation for the patients after the hip procedure is um, too bad. So there, I think I'm not convinced that there's really a clear parameter. So it's still something where we have an individualized approach for each patient. And I think this is something where we really have to work as a field in the next years. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, for that. Um, uh, even if I promise that I don't give my own opinion here, I now break my promise and say, I totally agree that with tips, we need to go a little bit earlier and not wait for the true refractory ascites. So with that breaking my promise, um, I would you know, really round up the, the tips discussion with probably asking you for some probably key contraindication on the one hand where you say, well, this is really the, the this is really the spot where you drop uh, the line between a patient that is too sick for a tip, because that's useful for uh, the audience here um, to hear that um, to guide the, the the practice. So, Christina, can I can I ask you what is your lab values? What is your heart um, condition? What is your renal function where you draw the line to say this tips is contraindicated? So. Um... In the context of starting off with the heart part, which is the easiest part. So we always look at, at uh, obviously the heart and it's very important that the diastolic function is very well evaluated. And we look thoroughly at the diastolic function. We uh, talk with our cardiologist to make sure that, uh, you know, that they don't consider that there is a relevant uh, diastolic dysfunction. Obviously, if there's already systolic dysfunction and the patient has a low ejection fraction, in these patients, we are very conservative if we consider it at all. And these patients, we would normally not put in a TIPS. Regarding the blood, uh, regarding the lab parameters, uh, although there have been studies in the setting of acute variceal bleeding that suggest that you can put in TIPS when the patient is has a higher bilirubin uh, than before, I think that the ascites patient is a bit different. I mean, this, uh, this increase in bilirubin in acute variceal bleeding is most likely due to the acute event right? But the ascites patient normally doesn't have anything acute. Uh, he's just baseline. And this, this increase in bilirubin is reflecting liver failure. And uh, the trick is to find it as a uh, uh, ben Masumi said, the trick is to find also the understanding of the hemodynamics. We do not know uh, how much we can shunt. Most likely, you, this is just theoretically and, and not, and not evidence-based, but Obviously, if you shunt too much in a patient that's already very fragile, then obviously you have after the tips, you have an increase in bilirubin, you have problems after tips. And these patients, perhaps they could 
perhaps benefit from a a, a smaller a smaller stent. In any case, we normally don't go for tips when the patient has a bilirubin above five. And regarding the renal function, well, um, there is not a cutoff. It is clear that in the setting of AKI, hepatorenal syndrome, the answer of whether or not a tips can be placed uh, in this setting is not. Uh, answered. There is uh, data, retrospective data, suggesting that it could be beneficial, but it's very controversial. We have to wait for studies in this setting before we can say that we can use tips in this situation. And in the setting of a chronic uh, hepatorenal syndrome, uh, in this setting, I would be very, very favorable for tips uh, and would obviously consider putting it without a, a certain cutoff, I have to say. Thanks for these uh, clear uh, words. and. Virginia, I would also like to hear um, your part, and I would specifically also happy to hear from, from you what you think about these small diameter tips. Uh, maybe we can be more safe with those. What's your opinion? I, I agree with what has been previously said, but I would like to add that I would fear two, uh, um, two situations. And one for me, it's the patient with aortic stenosis. And this patient um, tips can be uh, no. Um, it depends, but but close to contraindication, uh, I would say. And then the other the other situation is portopulmonary hypertension. That sometimes patients have not been diagnosed. Uh, previously, and it's in the moment of the procedure, uh, if you add a cardiopulmonary um, evaluation with a Swanigan catheter, then you can discover this, and th this can be uh, also dramatic. So these two situations, this is something that I will like really search um, actively, because it can really uh, be a real uh, contraindication. Everything else that has been said is more like um, relative contraindication and it would depend on other conditions and you have to really evaluate uh, the patient in the whole, you know, as a whole. Um, another risk factor for me is age. Um, so um, uh, all very old patients, um, we know that they have like more tendency to do uh, hepatic encephalopathy after. Although I don't want to put a cutoff uh, of age because uh, patients are can be you can be facing a very different patient with 75 uh, year old, like very active and not sarcopenic at all. And, and someone who is like younger and more uh, more fragile. So I don't like to put a cutoff, but it's also, mm. we, we know that there is a biological, biological age. And then I think that that managing when I'm uh, placing a tips, I, I always like to have a discussion with the patient uh, up front saying that this is not something like magic, that we will place the tips and then you will be uh, get rid of the ascites like right away. So this is like a long run. And and I would or the, the strategy that we do in Barcelona is like starting under dilating the tips and let's see how it goes and then adjusting the diuretics. And of course, the patient will still need a paracentesis, but then it's like time after time, then the the, uh, uh, the period of paracentesis will be uh, uh, longer and longer. And I always tell them this is it's going to be about six months, six months, one year uh, that we can, you can get rid uh, of ascites. And, and those patients, it's not only the procedure that, that doing um, a small dilatation is also a close follow-up that they really need a close follow-up to redose diuretics 
sticks to control hepatic encephalopathy or prevent hepatic encephalopathy. And, and I think that this is also uh, key in the patient with, uh, with ascites and, and they need to know that it's going to take a long time and mm-hmm. they have to be patients in the both sides also. Uh, uh, the doctor has also to be a little bit uh, patient. And sometimes I, 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 I have to admit that it's not easy and you like to go and dilate the tips uh, further and, and, and solve the thing. But, but I think uh, we should like be uh, more patient and go with a step, um, uh, stepwise uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the new solutions uh, that is clearly out there uh, that we learn how to manage best. So uh, Germany, uh, Freiburger tip score, uh, is that what you use or do you go with other cutoffs? Um, I think it is actually something that is quite interesting and is, is, uh, it is interesting also to use it, but um, we also... We uh, wrote a letter actually to JHAP because we analyzed whether the FIPS, so the Freiburg score, does differentiate between patients that should undergo TIPS or should not undergo TIPS. And actually in the patients with a good FIPS score, there was a survival benefit, but in those with a bad FIPS score, there was actually not a survival benefit, but the survival was also not worse if you put TIPS in it, in the patient. So this is what I said so we previously. <laughs> we don't know. So we actually at the that's at the bad patients, we actually don't have a strict cutoff, I think. And we have nothing really that uh, we can use for certain. Although I have to agree with Christina, I also in the patients ascites, chronic hyperbilirubinia, uh, uh, chronic icterus, chronic high levels of bilirubin, also um, also patients where I'm very, very cautious and somewhere between five and seven. There's my mm-hmm. cutoff to put a tit, tips into um, to to go for tips in these patients. But your I, age, what, your age, age cutoff. In, yeah. in terms of age, we also analyzed this in our Hanover cohort and published that that in terms of age, actually we could not find um, really severe problems and also not a survival uh, disadvantage in the elderly populations. Although I again have to um, agree with Virginia, um, Virginia that. Um, in the elderly population, we focus more problems in terms of complications, in, in particular in the early phase after tips implant, after the tips implant. But on the long term, there was no um, survival disadvantage, at least in our cohort, and this is also our experience. Also, I have to say that in the elderly, I also go for smaller diameters. So we use six millimeter tips with. Uh, we don't use under dilation, but we do actually two stents. In these um, in these patients, so we put a six millimeter tips uh, stand in the tract, not in the vessels, and then into this small diameter um, stand, we put the actually tips into it. So we have actually a stenosis, if you want so, uh, where it's only six millimeter and in, di- in the diameter, and then we can dilate this up to ten millimeter afterwards. But it's more stable than under dilating. That's our impression. But in the end, in the elderly patient, we actually also go for the for the smaller diameter due to the peri-interventional complications that we focus on these patients. Right, so but, thank you very much. I mean, this is, um, this is uh, very interesting. We, we thought that um, we have ascites replace the tips, but it, it's more than one tips. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it, it's very different in, in the approach where you put your cutoffs. Uh, at the end, uh, we agree that there's a lot we don't know, um, but we have also agreed that Billy Rubin, age, frailty, 
cardiac function, pulmonary hypertension is something to carefully look at. So finally, um, as already mentioned, there is also other treatment options for the patients. Um, and um, those are um, permanent drainage systems um, that can be uh, tunnel catheters or that can be um, uh, automated pumps that drain the cytos into the urinary bladder. Um, all innovative systems, um, still um, interventional treatments, and also similar for TIPS, um, it's very clear that we also think about the optimal patient selection. So I would also uh, like to, to, to start this round now to address this question first to Christina. When do you think uh, these type of treatments could be uh, a good solution for the patients with ascites? So these other treatments, this permanent drainage is, I think, is not a problem that solves the root of, of the development of ascites, which is portal hypertension. So I would only consider these options when the patient is not a candidate for TIPS. Um, I would consider this more in a palliative situation uh, and not go upfront uh, for for these options because with TIPS you reduce the portal pressure and uh, the patient has other advantages besides uh, the management of ascites. Virginia, yeah, totally agree. I have the same, exactly the same opinion. Okay, <laughs> well, it seems that um, there is. Uh, some uh, some of some experience in Germany there. Um, Dr. Masume has even published on uh, these kinds of treatment. Um, so it would be very interesting to learn from you when you go for these type of treatments because you have a lot of patients uh, with these type of um, uh, systems, right? Yeah. So um, there are actually two settings where we consider the tunnel catheter, for example. Um, the first is the already mentioned, so the palliative care, where you have no other options left because obviously um, this does not cure portal hypertension. It just it just prevents the patient from um, receiving a paracentesis. But the other option is also we sometimes use it as bridging treatment. So, um, for example, as Virginia told us, and wonderful stress that TIPS is not the immediate magic treatment. Sometimes. The patient needs some time afterwards, and it's actually the regular case, I think, that the patient needs some time and needs maybe requires some additional paracentesis over a while. This is sometimes also a situation where we use the tunnel catheter in, in addition. But you have to be aware that um, Dr. Teras, who actually um, uh, summarized our cohort and analyzed the data, he also figured out that at the end, the catheter um, is not really a permanent solution because if you have it in palliative care, these patients are so sick that many of things them just develop peritonitis. Whether this is associated with the catheter or not is not really clear. In our experience, it's not really more frequent, the peritonitis, although we would suggest it might be that the catheter itself might be a risk factor. It was not in our cohort, at least. And um, But we could see that the patients are so ill that they have just a high incidence of ascites. Never independent from the from the catheter implant, but if you have a catheter in and you have peritonitis, you would remove the catheter. So um, it's not really a permanent solution. So fifty percent of the patients they have to get their um, catheter removed within six months after the insertion. So this is something that I think we have to think about. 
that this is not really a permanent treatment in most patients. Virginia? Yeah, Ben, I would like um, to ask you about this approach of placing a tips and then while waiting for uh, the, um, um, uh, for the effect of the tips, like putting um, the catheter. So what about the risk of infection and in, in, in a patient who has a, a tips uh, a place that can be uh, dra dramatic if we uh, get endotypicity? So what is your um, feeling or or in your population, does it happen or uh, are, aren't you scared uh, of this? Because I would personally uh, be a little bit scared. So in terms of endotypicitis, I have to say that um, I have only seen a single patient um, with endotypicitis. What we don't do is um, we don't um, put a tips in when the patient has ongoing infection. I guess that's the same for you that if the patient has uh, evidence of infection, this is not the time where you put the tips in. might be different in patients with refractory bleeding, but in terms of ascites, you would not choose this moment. And then afterwards, in terms of the patients that, that require weekly paracentesis for, paracentesis, for example, our impression is that the risk for peritonitis is not really affected by the cathedral. But this is, this is relied on retrospective data, so I cannot cannot um, tell you this for sure. But in terms of the, the only difference in terms of the patient with or without catheter in terms of peritonitis was in terms of the bacteria that you can find. So slightly, slightly more positive cultures if you have a catheter compared to the patients that had, don't have a catheter in turn case of SPP. Yeah, so thank you very much about uh, sharing uh, your experience, um, not only about the tunnel cartitis, uh, the tips, uh, your strategy to evaluate uh, these patients. Um, what, what I think is a common theme is that while uh, the permanent drainage systems and the pumps seem to be uh, treatments that come later in disease, uh, maybe even in the palliative setting mostly, tips um, has moved a little forward um, because it uh, seems to treat the problem, uh, the major driver, which is portal hypertension, uh, more at its root. And so I thank all the uh, participants and the experts giving us their, um, their strategy, their uh, advice for, for the treatment of those patients. And with that, um, I'm very happy uh, to close uh, today's session. And thank all the uh, people who have listened. Um, thank you for giving us your advice. And I'm very happy that you joined us today for this ESL Studio on Ascites. Thank you very much.